If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator. If you are a marketing executive who wants to deliver bottom line impact by identifying and connecting with revenue generating customers, then this is the show for you. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe, CEO of Ambition Data. Each week, I bring you the leaders behind the customer-centric revolution who share their expert advice. Are you ready to accelerate? Then let's go. Welcome, everyone. Today's show is about 2019 predictions, and in this case, predictions about corporate valuation. Uh, To help me discuss this very interesting topic is Dan McCarthy. Dan is the co-founder and director of Theta Equity Partners, which we also just call Theta, and he's also an assistant professor of marketing at Emory University. Dan, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you again, Allison. Now, I know you from the connection with uh, Professor Pete Fader at Wharton, but tell us a little bit about your background and how you got attached to corporate valuation as an interesting idea. It really goes back about 12 years that I was at the Wharton School for my undergraduate, part of the M&T program. And back in 2006, we were in the middle of a housing bubble and lots of financial engineering. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I was warden to the core. And like many of my colleagues, I went off into finance. So I'd spent about six years working at a fundamentals-based hedge fund before seeing the light and coming back for a PhD, formerly in statistics, but also at the Wharton School. And it was in the second year of the program that someone had said I should really speak with Pete Fader, that, that we'd really get along. I'm really glad that I made the trip up to the seventh floor to have that chat because you know, really the rest is history. I kind of made a big pivot into marketing, focusing on predicting what customers will do using statistical models. And it was pretty shortly after that that it kind of converged on this topic of customer-based corporate valuation, which is really bringing together those predictive models for what customers will do, but kind of inserting that within a corporate valuation use case. So in some sense, it was just bringing together all the topics that I've loved the most over the past 12 years that concept of being able to understand what customers will do and relate it all the way back to the bottom line is something that we we love in the data space because it's oftentimes very difficult to do. With your new venture at Theta Equity Partners, are you connecting the C-levels to Wall Street and helping them think about their data and the way they connect to Wall Street in a different way? We've definitely been connecting them much more to their valuations. And we've been also using the same models on behalf of investors, primarily private equity firms, but we're also having a lot of discussions with late stage VC firms and with hedge funds. And so certainly to the extent that we've been getting very strong traction, both with the CEOs and the CFOs on the one side and with the investors on the other side, that's some form of connection. Oftentimes, when we are speaking with CEOs and CFOs, it's because they are in the middle of some sort of capital raise. Either it's uh, a round that they're raising or considering some sort of a strategic alternative. But 
you know, obviously to the extent that this is really, really relevant, relevant enough that the investors that they're speaking to are, are paying for the same analysis, it's really important and, and potentially very helpful for them to have in their pitch decks as they try to, to paint a, a view of how much more they should be worth in the future. And I think that is exactly why this is a predictive episode, is not only are the models predictive, but you're also trying to shape the way Wall Street thinks about companies and investors think about companies. Would that be fair? I think so. You know, our goal, we really hope to just change the conversation on Wall Street and you know, have everyone wake up a lot more than they have up to this point about the health of the customer and how important that is to the overall valuation of the firm. Mm-hmm. You know, so what is the proper revenue multiple or EBITDA multiple that a company should get? Well, it should be to a large extent driven by future expectations of the monetization of active customers you know, future acquisition growth, uh, the company's retention curve. And to students of the course that I teach, I've kind of gone through exercises where I've shown them examples of two hypothetical companies where literally the revenue trajectory is exactly the same. And the only thing that's different between them is the company's retention. And you can have some companies with great retention, others with much worse, where their historical revenues look the same, but their forward-looking revenue outlook should be dramatically different. And specifically, it should be worse for the company with the worst retention, all else being equal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that sort of exercise, I just, I haven't seen it really be done to this extent before. So yeah, I think, you know, both Pete Fader and I, we're hoping to bring some real rigor and science to it, you know, by kind of doing this with many companies directly. Yeah, to kind of very directly change that conversation. And it seems obvious in a way. So I'm going to translate what you said a little bit for folks who don't speak models and don't really understand Wall Street terminology. And basically, the way the way I see it is companies should be rewarded for the quality of their customer base. And until now, it's really been hidden. You know, if I come to Comcast and I don't get great service and then I move on, um, if, if I have a choice to move on, then I'm just like one number in the game and Wall Street doesn't really acknowledge that. They don't look at the quality of the customer base. But if I stay with a company like our local ski resort, you know, I renew with them every year. I don't go to another ski resort. I love this place. I come back again and again and again. Now they're not a public company, but the quality of their customer base is very loyal. There's a high retention rate. And so what we're really talking about here is how kind is a company to their customers and how does that translate to their bottom line? How much do their customers love them back? And I think this is such a great concept for empowering or, or recognizing the power of customers in any business. I think that's, uh, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I would say too, it, it's really interesting. You bring up uh, the example of being kind to the customers. And I think whether it's even you know, kind of valuation friendly to be very kind or less kind, uh, it's going to be a function of, of the company and the, the vertical that they operate in. And there could be some verticals, and actually maybe Comcast is one of them, where they're actually not being incentivized to be that kind to their customers because they know that the retention of customers is going to continue to be really good regardless of how poorly they treat the customers. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate for us as customers of them, and I've experienced it firsthand, but I've also experienced it on the flip side that if they're the only game in town, then I can't switch. Contrast that to certain much more competitive e-commerce verticals where I do have the ability to just very easily take my business elsewhere. 
you know, there much more of a case could be made for being kind, especially to the highest value customers. So in a way, what we're saying is the more competition there is in the market, the more incentive there is for companies to have high quality customer bases, which probably translate to kindness. And the more incentive perhaps there is for Wall Street to look at a different way of valuing those businesses. I think all those being equal, obviously, to the extent that companies can personalize that service to different customer segments, but even kind of personalize the level of kindness <laughs> that they're going out, you know, to optimize that around the value of the customers. Um, you know, that's the sort of thing I think we should be seeing a lot more of. And then I think to the point about customer-based corporate valuation, the next big question is how these firms can communicate that to the shareholders. And I think that's kind of a whole other challenge that you know we're now starting to develop some science around, but uh, I think we're still very much in the first innings there. Well, let's talk about some of those examples. I know you've done um, several different companies that you've looked at their public data and you've calculated how well they're retaining their customers. Um, what's a good story that you could share with us? Yeah, I'd say one of the more recent ones was the comparison that I did between Blue Apron and actually a, a private company called Emails that's operating in a, in a very similar space. Essentially, it was to say, for one, you know, imagine that we have two companies. In terms of the service that's being provided to the end customer, they're similar, but the way they went about it was dramatically different. So they have very different business models. And with Blue Apron, you know, they were one of the first examples that I think really stood out in the minds of the everyday public as a result of some of the work that I put together about their customer retention. You know, people could really appreciate the importance of that to the valuation story and what's happened to their stock price since they IPO'd. So really, you know, the story was more about looking at other companies. And so in the case of emails, essentially what we saw was, here's a company, they're smaller, but they're acquiring customers just as quickly. But most importantly, their retention was dramatically higher. So whereas at Blue Apron, their six-month retention rate was 30%, which basically means you acquire a bunch of customers and roll forward the clock six months, and 70% of those customers have churned out. At emails, it was dramatically higher. They had a six-month retention rate. I believe it was on the order of 80% or so. Wow. And so just a, a world of difference. And granted, you know, they have a lot of customers that sign up for annual plans. And so at the one-year point, they finally have the opportunity to churn and, and a bunch of them do. But their, their one-year retention was still on the order of 45%, which was dramatically higher than the around 24% that Blue Apron was doing. So no matter how you cut it, they were retaining these customers for a very, very, very long period of time. And on the customer acquisition cost side, they were spending dramatically less, less than half what Blue Apron was spending to acquire each of their paying customers. So, yeah, essentially, you know, we're starting to come to this, call it a report card, where we take all of these kind of key customer-based KPIs and just put the companies head-to-head. And along virtually all major dimensions, emails had come out ahead. And it was kind of no wonder that you know, they've been kind of thriving, you know, whereas you know, Blue Apron, I believe it was just yesterday that their stock, for the first time ever, uh, fell below $1 a share, which uh, if it remains below that level, they may need to delist from the, the exchange that they're currently on. 
Which is just the reflection of what you've seen already, but now just finally playing out in Wall Street. So here was a great opportunity for Wall Street to perhaps use different metrics or better metrics that looked at the quality of the customer base and really pay attention to, should this company have gone public in the first place? And when it does go public, what's the proper valuation for it? Would you have sent this company out through IPO? I would not have. And even if I would have, I believe that they had very aggressively acquired customers in the six months leading up to the IPO. And I believe that they were doing it to be able to say that they had over a million active customers as of their pre-IPO filing. I think they were basically burning dollars to be able to hit that, what I call a trophy metric. (laughs) So I think there were certain things, even if they were to IPO, that I, I would have gone about completely differently. And contrast that to a company like Stitch Fix, yeah, they've done a good job of maintaining the value of their customers, and they showed very little evidence of gunning the metrics in the period of preceding their IPO. Talk a little bit more about gunning the metrics. Is this is this something that's really driven by the venture capitalists or private equity firms or whoever is behind the company, and they're trying to get to an exit by pushing the company through IPO? I think that the venture capitalists are a part of it, for sure. I think that oftentimes what their objective is with investments is to return the fund on one of them. And they know kind of going into investments in 20 companies that most of those companies will probably flame out. And so what they're hoping for is to be able to get that one that is so successful that it makes up for the other 19 companies that will inevitably go down. Mm-hmm. And you know, so one of the big things that they'll focus on is kind of growth, growth, growth. How can we just grow as quickly as possible? And if we do, and the street were to reward that, they'd see a very high level of revenues, and they'd see a very strong year-on-year revenue growth percentage and say, well, typically, holding everything else equal, I should pay a higher revenue multiple for that company. And so it basically creates this incentive to just grow the revenues as quickly as possible when some of these other considerations like customer retention, which obviously we're showing are extremely important, I think they would acknowledge that those metrics are important, but they don't surface themselves quite as quickly. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes they can kind of take a little bit of a backseat. And so I've heard firsthand some VCs say things like customer retention, it's important, but we're going to solve some of those problems later. (laughs) And uh, I'm not sure that's a problem that you can just solve later. I think that's a a problem that should be top of the mind from the very beginning. Let's touch on that for a second, because there's a key concept around customer lifetime value that the first customers you acquire are often the best customers you acquire. Is that does that mean that you really can't solve this problem later? You've really set the precedent and you've burned through any good customers already. I've definitely seen that happen a lot. I wouldn't claim to make that as like a universal law, but I would say from the many analyses that I had done through my previous company, Zodiac, uh, which I'd also co-founded with BeatFader, and through Theta, uh, just over the life cycle of these firms, the value of these customers after you acquire them does tend to go down as you move into a company's maturity. And oftentimes, too, the, the amount that you spend to acquire those customers tends to move up. And typically, that's the result, I think, of moving from cheaper marketing channels to more traditional marketing channels like paid advertising. So in general, I would definitely agree that later customers, they tend to be worth less. 
the thing that a company is, is ultimately trying to maximize is the total amount of customer value that they're acquiring every period. And so there could be some circumstances where I'd be very happy to accept a lower CLV if it meant that I'm acquiring many, many, many more customers at that lower CLV, as long as that CLV is very adequate. So I think oftentimes there's a dynamic like that that's at play, that there's a bit more volume coming in the door, even if it's at a, a lower quality level. But you know, kind of holding that aside, it does reinforce that point that the unit economics is something that are very important to get, and it really shouldn't be left till later. And can you just give a quick definition of unit economics for folks who don't have an econ background? Yeah, I'd say it breaks down to the following five factors. Customer acquisitions. Yes, so first, how much am I spending to bring each new customer in the door? And then uh, what is the volume of future customers that I expect to acquire in the future? And then the heart of it is customer retention. So how long do I expect to retain customers after I've acquired them? Then it's the order rate. So how many orders do I expect to get while customers are alive? The basket size, which is how much spend is going to be associated with each of the orders. And then finally, the contribution margin, which is how much variable profitability can I expect from each of those incremental revenue dollars. So you bring all that together, and that's what creates the unit economic health of a firm. And those factors, they can really play off against each other. So oftentimes, for example, if you're willing to pay a higher CAC, your volume of future acquisitions will be higher as well. And you know, the same would hold true if you have pretty strict requirements about the sort of contribution margin that you would want to make on acquired customers. Well, if you hold it really strict, there's only going to be so many customers that are that profitable. And so you know, typically that will also be inversely related to the volume of future acquisitions. So you know, one thing that I've heard many people talk about is, you know, what is a good level of retention? <laughs> and uh, you know, typically it's at that point, I say, all right, well, let's just kind of take a step back and let's look at these five factors and just analyze the net effect on those five factors as a whole. And that's, I think, what can kind of lead companies to the right answer. Got it. So there isn't a rule of thumb that says, hey, if you have 60% retention or 30% at retention, that that is good. Obviously, if you had um, 99% churn and 1% retention, that's probably universally bad. <laughs> but there's a heavy gradation in between. <laughs> yeah, you know, just kind of to, to play devil's advocate with myself, if you had a business that you're spending a dollar or a penny to acquire the customer, and you're getting back thousands and thousands of contribution margin dollars on that first purchase, and then they never come back, well, I'd run that business. <laughs> that business, it'll have a very different risk profile. So it's going to be much more driven by its ability to continue to acquire customers like that. But again, you know, that's why it's really hard to have a hard and fast rule because there's five different factors and that means there's many different combinations that could be good or bad. Got it. Got it. <laughs> well, let's go back to some of your other examples. When we talked about Blue Apron, we touched on HelloFresh for just a second, and then we also touched on Stitch Fix. Is there anything more you want to elaborate in those models or do you want to queue up another one? Uh, yeah, maybe just another point about Stitch Fix. Yes, as I mentioned, they didn't seem to be gunning the numbers, uh, which I really respect them for. And even though I, I wasn't able to run a full-blown model on them, I think it is fair to say that they do turn a profit on their customers. So their CLVs are, are positive. And I think they were a great example of a company that made a decision to move into other categories, specifically men and plus-size clothing. 
And when they did that, the CLVs of those customers weren't quite as high. And so they saw kind of a move down in their profitability. And there was a lot of angst about that. And part of me felt like, you know, it is true, all else being equal, you want higher CLVs. But I think that was a perfect example going back to this kind of five-point framework where I'd be happy to accept lower CLVs if the volume of future acquisitions was large enough as a result of that. And the CLVs of the new people that I'm bringing in are still very positive. Mm-hmm. And you know, here, again, if they didn't make that move into men in plus-size clothing, those are whole sectors of the apparel market that would not have been adoptable. So essentially, they made the decision to, to address those markets And there will be some time where they don't have CLVs that are as high. Hopefully they can bring that up as they learn more about those customers and unleash their data science teams to analyze their data. But uh, again, I I think CLV, it's the most important measure if if I had to pick one, but you can't ignore the volume. Do you think, Dan, that companies like Stitch Fix are more successful because they're so close to not just to the data, but to what the connection is between the marketing data and the business data so that they really understand the engine of their business and therefore they're not swayed by what might be bad guidance from other keyboard members or other folks that influence a company? I do. Yeah, I think it's a really great point that especially with a company like Stitch Fix, they have such visibility into the needs and preferences of their customers that other very well-intentioned companies that even may have very good data science departments, if they're very, very heavy on brick and mortar and they just don't have quite as much trackability of what their customers are doing, you know, those, those latter companies just wouldn't be able to do what Stitch Fix has done. So yeah, I think the big thing that the Stitch Fix model provides to them is just the ability to personalize to a degree that uh, hadn't been possible before. Part of it is because they have a semi-subscription offering, which means they're able to see everything about their customers and they're shipping to them directly so they know their shipping address. And because clothes that aren't liked are, are returned back to them, and because they know an excruciating amount of detail about the clothes that are being shipped and returned, you know, the features of the clothing, they can understand a lot more what those returns mean for the preferences of those customers, which allows them to ship out boxes that are more likely to be kept. So that is an example of a business that can really be made extremely customer-centric. Yeah, they basically got their fingers on all the right metrics in order to make that happen. I get that. All right. Well, let's talk about another example. Who else have you seen doing interesting calculations and connecting to Wall Street in the right way? Uh, another interesting example, I'd say, might be uh, just to kind of pick one, Farfetch. I know if you followed their IPO, uh, but they, they IPO'd relatively recently, and they're an online luxury marketplace. So you could think of them as kind of an eBay, but for very high-end goods. And I'll be the first to say I, I know nothing about fashion. <laughs> so if there's a fashion that I like, if you were to, to ask my wife, it probably means that people should go short that immediately. <laughs> but, but just going purely by the customer metrics, I'd say the thing that struck to me the most when I was going through their pre-IPO filing was this one chart that they put in there, which I've now come to lovingly coin the triple C chart, the C3 chart for customer cohort chart. And it's basically cohort by cohort, 
what is the total amount of revenues that those customers had generated? And so you can see things like the 2015 cohort, all the customers they acquired then, they generated 100 million in revenues. How much revenues did that cohort generate in 2016, in 2017, and in 2018? And there's a lot of really good information there about that company's ability to retain their customers, as you can kind of you know, almost see from that flow of data. And so basically, myself, uh, Val Rastogwev, and Pete Fader, we had run the numbers on Farfetch. And basically, the model it suggested, they have great repeatability. That the customers, they acquire a batch of customers. And essentially, what we saw was, you'll see an initial drop-off in revenues, and then it stabilizes at a still reasonably high level, and then just goes totally flat. And basically, at that lower level, those customers become something of an annuity. Uh, which speaks to something that the company's doing right. There's a core segment of people in their customer base that really loves what they do, and they'll come back for multiple years, like five plus years, which that's saying a lot. So there were some questions about company's margin profile, and you know, right now they're unprofitable. But again, the idea behind uh, having a business that has very strong retention is it's going to be much easier to generate what's called in finance operating leverage, which is basically the ability to improve your margins as your revenue grows. Because essentially, once we you kind of roll forward the clock five years, most of this company's revenue will be coming from loyal customers who've been around for a while. And it may not require as much investment on Farfetch's part to keep them around, that they just kind of keep doing their thing. And so uh, those customers almost kind of become pure profit to the business. So I'd say while there are some questions about their margin profile, you know, I, I won't admit to, to feeling quite as strongly about that, that they've really hit on something very good uh, when it comes to revenue repeatability. And so our analysis that concluded when we did our full-blown valuation of them, uh, it was basically that even though they're selling for a relatively expensive valuation, that one could justify that valuation on the basis of the health of their business. So again, it's not even necessarily saying that they're undervalued, but you know, essentially that we could reach that valuation and it was primarily driven by the goodness of the customers that they're bringing in the door. So good customers are more profitable because they're happier, they're not pulling on um, heavy returns or all these extra support things that the business has to provide like call center or email questions because they kind of know how it works. Is that fair to say? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's it. The other key element is you don't have to keep spending those customer acquisition dollars to bring them in the door. Right. So even if their profitability remained exactly the same as the day they came in, well, you know, now you don't have to spend any of those marketing dollars. And so in theory, the idea would be at some point, the company could kind of turn off their ad spend budget. And they've got this book of business. It's really strong and solid. It's going to be there for many years. And all those dollars that they had been spending on ads before, suddenly is gone. And so yeah, it just makes it that much easier to you know, become a profitable company. Okay, I'm not going to recommend that to anyone listening to the show. I think it's pretty clear you always need some advertising, some branding to get in the game. Um, but I see what you mean about the book of the business. And, and I thought it was really interesting when you said they became a totally flat annuity that basically, you know, they, they were so stable, they were just like the company could just count on that group of people who love them to come back again and again. And I think that's what every company is really trying to get to is 
a large group of people that really loves them. But but what was interesting and what you said was that that group was stable, but not necessarily targeted for growth. It wasn't like they were saying, um, you're coming back again and again, and now we want you to buy more and more and more. Instead, they seem to be satisfied with that. Is that right? It is. Yeah. So this was one of the other interesting things about the disclosures that Farfetch put in their pre-IPO filing. They'd given some information about the amount that they were spending on uh, bringing customers in the door versus the amount they were spending on what's called demand generation, which is essentially ad spend for repeat orders, so from customers that were already part of the customer base. And an indication that would be potentially more troubling would be that they were spending lots and lots of money to keep ginning up orders (laughs) from their existing customers. But that's not what we saw. I think that they had said something like 30% of their ad spend was earmarked for uh, demand gen from existing customers. Mm. And to me, that's a good sign because, as you're saying, it it basically means those customers are on autopilot. They're just buying on the platform. They like it, and they don't need to be constantly prodded to make that next purchase. Got it. That. That makes perfect sense. Well, Dan, these are fantastic examples, and thank you for sharing links with me before the show. I'm going to put those in the show notes. Uh, we probably have about six different story links that people can dig into if they'd like to see a little bit more about these case studies. And I want to go into one particular avenue here. We've been talking a lot about public companies. Are we pretty much saying that the same operations apply when companies are not yet public? And is there is there more you can find out when they're not public because, you know, they're not so constrained with all the public you know, or going public rules? Or is there less? It's a good question. And I say it alludes to one of the limitations of our work with public companies. And that's primarily that if they're public, they're kind of straitjacketed. And the only analysis that we can do is on the disclosures that they decided to put in their filings. So we're kind of beholden to these firms. It's a problem. With private companies, in contrast, or maybe even with public companies, but where we're under a strict non-disclosure agreement, uh, which we have done in the past, there suddenly we're able to get a richer set of data again. So the gold mine, the ideal source of data, would just be just a raw transaction log, just who bought when and for how much, and ideally also you know, what was the contribution profitability of those dollars. If you have that and you've got a whole bunch of CRM data, then we can paint a much, much richer picture of the health of, of the firm from a customer perspective. You know, we can start talking about CLB by the category of first purchase and how that's evolved over time. Yeah, you know, It's just a level of depth that you would never see in, in public filings. Mm-hmm. So and that, that's definitely the sort of analysis that we've done for private equity clients. And you know, it's just it's something that if there is anyone who's interested in having this analysis be done, it's good to know that those other sorts of analyses are possible. It's really just a question of the data that we have to be able to fuel that analysis. Well, Dan, how can people reach you if they want to get in touch? You know, let's say they, they want to do an analysis with Theta Equity Partners. They're so like, hey, tell me about the health of my business or thinking about going public. Um, wh- wh- how should they get in touch? Uh, there's a few ways. One would be by email. Dan at betaequity.com. But definitely also please connect by LinkedIn and Twitter. So my Twitter handle is uh, D underscore M-C-C-A-R. And on LinkedIn, if you were to just look up 
you know, Daniel McCarthy, Emery, uh, that, that should pull me up. So in addition to being able to reach me, for good or for bad, I post a lot of content there. This is basically the topic I spend all of my time thinking about. <laughs> so uh, you know, to the extent that it's interesting to you and you might want to participate in the conversation, I'd love to, to be able to go back and forth with you over there. I, and I can I can vouch for that because yeah, there are some really great topics in your feed. And what I love is that every time I post a comment, it's like you never sleep. You know, there's always some comment coming back from you, like within 24 hours. So um, Dan is definitely the guy to engage with if you're interested in this topic and, and you like these ideas and the models. So thank you for being so responsive. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, if I'm up at odd hours, it's typically because I've got a 14-month-old baby at home. So in between uh, putting her to sleep <laughs> in the morning. But uh, less, less so these days. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I, I want to summarize with a couple predictions that I think came out of our conversation. And, and you know, feel free to weigh in here or shape what I'm saying. But here's what I heard. The customer goodness is really quantifiable and it's profitable and businesses that are not paying attention to customer goodness in 2019 are setting themselves up for future troubles. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that if you're not paying attention to these numbers, you're flying blind and that can be dangerous. So maybe you just happen to be doing everything right, but in all likelihood, uh, there could be a lot of money that's being left on the table. You have no North Star to be <laughs> moving in the direction of. That's a good way to call it. It really is a North Star. And and then I want to build on that, too, because we talked a lot about acquisition. And so I want to say that companies in 2019 that are repeatedly spending heavily on acquisition over and over without regard to the existing customer base could also be a red flag because retention is really where it's at. Yes, and especially if you see a company that the revenues are growing, but it's entirely due to customer acquisition. I mean, the ongoing profitability of those customers after acquisition is poor. Uh, that is a very big red flag. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of where we get into how much does your customer base love you? If they love you a lot, your retention should be good. <laughs> and how well do you treat them? Uh, you hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, that's it's actually not fair to say to put it all on just the customer. There can be a lot of factors that go into whether a company is able to hold on to its customer base or not. So we can't make it so one sided. But in in general, if you're treating people well and you're operationally effective and you've you know, your supply chain and your responses and everything else is firing well, that should be the right marker to look at. Yes, I'd say with the caveat that there is some variation across product categories. And certain categories just lend themselves more to repeat business than others do. The mattress example, right? I mean, what's my retention on, a, on buying a mattress? It might be 10 years long. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, at that point, you know, the onus could be on the company to find ways to supplement the revenue stream. Mm-hmm. You know, so there could be additional unmet demands that you know, could be uniquely satisfied by the mattress company. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately... It may not be the fault of the company itself, but it's just not going to lend itself too well to, <laughs> to a whole lot of repeat orders relative to say, selling books. I love it how, you know, it's, it's just classic data. It always just, it depends. <laughs> 
Yeah, but the key is to be concrete with when it depends, <laughs> not just to throw up the arms like the economists oftentimes do. And I want to pull out one more thing in our prediction summary. And this is what you were saying around Stitch Fix, this concept that the when the data science team really has a lock on the important metrics, they know the business, they know the customer, and they can execute smart marketing behind it, that companies that imitate that kind of data science-driven strategy, uh, where the, the tip of the spear is really about uh, customer lifetime value, unit economic metrics, those are the companies that stand to succeed the most in 2019. Would you agree? I'd say that they would stand to succeed in 2019, yes. Good, good. Dan, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's always a pleasure to have you on and to to pick your brain and all the amazing concepts that you put forward about modeling and Wall Street. It's such an interesting space. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate your having me, and here's to a, a wonderful 2019 for everyone who's listening to the show. Yes, cheers. <laughs> and remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. That's the customer goodness. This is not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is your host, Allison Hartzell, and I have two gifts for you. First, I've written a guide for the customer-centric CMO, which contains some of the best ideas from this podcast, and you can receive it right now. Simply text Ambition Data, one word, to 31996. And after you get that white paper, you'll have the option for the second gift, which is to receive the signal. Once a month, I put together a list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are making amazing progress as they build customer equity. I hope you enjoy the CMO guide and the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.